Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special returning guest is Akil Patel. Akil Patel, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me on again. Well, it's always a pleasure. I always get very excited when you come on the show and uh, it's always a lot of fun and, and also we learn um, a lot. And since you were last on, um, you were in the process of releasing your book. We've actually gone through that journey with you and pleased to say it's out. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for all of your help. Um, yeah, so 11th of July was a publication date. Uh, we've had some pretty good initial feedback, I think. Be fair give, us to a, say. Give, us a, give us a title, Akil. The title is The Secret Wealth Advantage. Uh, how to profit from the economy's hidden cycle. And it's published by Harriman House. And available from all good bookshops. Um, it's available in several Waterstones uh, branches and Blackwells around London and in places like Oxford and Cambridge. Um, and obviously online and from most online retailers. Is it still available? Because at one stage it wasn't. You couldn't get hold of it. Yeah, so I learned quite a lot about um, Amazon's internal processes, such as they are. Um, and I think for a first-time author with no track record, they don't do much sort of stockpiling ahead of publication. Uh, so you can pre-order, um, and I think they they sort of get some copies in on the on that basis. But if there's a surge in in demand. Uh, close to publication, they don't, they can't fulfil those orders. Well, the, uh, the lights so. went out in my part of London when the book was released online. So. <laughs> Glad to hear it. I hope it was something to do with my book. Um, yeah, so I think, and, and particularly in Australia, because I, I have quite a few subscribers. So I, you know, I, as you know, I'm director of property share market economics. We have quite a few subscribers in Australia. Amazon in Australia is not particularly big. Um, and I think it took several weeks for some of them to to get their copies. Anyway, it's sign of sign of decent demand. Uh, things sold a few thousand, but could always do with selling a few thousand more. So the, the first few words of the title actually mirror uh, Phil Anderson's book, the, the Secret mm -hmm. Life of Real Estate and Banking. I was just wondering, Tim obviously recommended. Uh, Harriman House to you, which is why you went with them. But why why didn't you publish under Shepherd Bourne? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I think I just wanted to access a different publisher's database. Oh, um, that's interesting. That's a really good idea. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean that was that was one of the reasons. I the other reason was that I had also um, read a few uh, publications. So a few books published by them, uh, and I'd always enjoyed the kind of both the content, but also the way they put books together. Um, you know, the quality of the paper and the covers and and so on. And I thought, uh, you know, mine could be a good fit, and they agreed. So that was the other reason. Brilliant. Um, so the structure of the book, you took six months to decide upon the the structure because you weren't happy with it. I mean, that that's in itself tells you how much you put into how much thought you put into the book in the first place yeah it's an interesting story so um i think when i spoke to you tim just before i uh 
contacted Craig Pierce, who's the commissioning editor. Um, I I basically had a, a sort of an idea of how the book might be structured, and Craig kind of got me to write a book proposal, and it took me several months to do that. And probably the hardest part of that was deciding on on the structure. Uh, and Craig and I bounced a few ideas between us during the process. Um, and finally, we agreed on something. And as soon as I started writing, I sort of thought this is not quite right. And it just so happened that um, a friend of mine at the time, um, who herself was in publishing, recommended uh, an editor in, in I think, Penguin Random House, um, just to, to talk to. And I, I phoned him up and and I described the book and and he said, I don't think you've got the right structure. Uh, and he made some suggestions and I took that away. And, you know, it was quite hard to see how what I wanted to say about the 18 year cycle would fit into that structure. Um, and so I, you know, I spent the first summer, which was during lockdown, actually thinking about it. Um, didn't get very far until one day I was watching a Netflix documentary. You know, the um, I may have mentioned it before the um the the last I think dance. It's, it's called the last dance it's the last season of the chicago bulls you know the famous chicago bulls team so michael jordan's last season there and it's basically a journey through that season but they have at, sort of periodically they have flashbacks to how the team was created and you know the how the main characters interacted with each other so they're telling the story of the final season but then they're going back in in time or going into other sort of areas to explore various things about sport about putting teams together um and uh how you know how you manage all these big egos in a, in a dressing room how they all interact with the main person obviously michael jordan and i thought this is the structure for the book it's i'm going to tell the story of an 18-year cycle but at periodic points through that journey i'm going to explain why the cycle happens i'm going to then another point tell them you know how how land is still so important to the cycle, even though we live in a digital age, how money and banking fit in. And so as the reader goes through the journey through the cycle, I give them different pieces of knowledge to help them get through the next stage, as it were. Um, and so, yeah, that was a sort of part of the inspiration behind the structure. It took lo a lot of time to get it right. And then when I wrote it, it I had to revise quite a lot of the drafts to make it fit. And I was still making some fairly significant changes, even in the probably about six months before publication date. So, you know, the start of the year. So yeah, it was quite interesting. Getting the structure right, I'm told, is the hardest part. And I certainly found that to be the case. The Last Dance, that could be a a, a great title for the end of the cycle, which we, we could come back to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did I did briefly think about having that as the title for oh, the really? okay. final chapter, but I thought there's slightly on the nose <laughs> and maybe well, for uh, anyone maybe, that's for anyone that's un, for anyone that's unaware there is a, a city phrase enjoy the party but dance near the door yes i i, <laughs> I got that from you tim uh that's a really good one yeah you can have you know it could have been any number of things i think i sort of wanted an idea that um you know it's it's not quite so final you know there is there is there will be another cycle to come and actually it's a good time to be preparing for the next one when you get to the end of the current one um so the last dance probably didn't quite convey that. Um, so and I, I opted for something fairly neutral, the global cycle, um, because I also wanted to make the point that over time, um, uh, cycles in different countries have become increasingly synchronized.
So I was privileged to <clears throat> have read a, a copy before. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm getting emotional. No, it's just a frog. In the <laughs> I, I was privileged to read a copy before uh, the before it was obviously released, and um, I was totally gripped by it. It was it, it was and is an amazing piece of work. Um, but one of those elements that had to be changed because you talked about the changes was, of course, you. Uh, wanted to know why, or the Queen wanted to know uh, why the economists didn't see the crisis coming. Obviously, that was a question that was very important to your family and your business. Having sort of lived through the crisis and seen in real time how many economists didn't see the crisis coming, I personally thought that was a very powerful element because I remember thinking, how how are they going to revise? their models in the light of getting it so very very wrong and i the way it the book ended was quite emotional actually but of course very sadly the queen died so you had to revise that so people didn't get to see it and i i thought that was obviously a shame that the queen had died but more of a shame that um, that powerful element of the book uh, had to be revised yeah so yeah the so the the book contains the introduction chapter, which which is sort of the episode of the Queen visiting the LSE and asking, you know, uh, she'd asked for a briefing apparently, um, and so uh, one of the professors put together a a quick presentation, and she kind of apparently, and I interviewed him um, during the course of writing the book. And uh, he said that uh, you know he'd have it. It was actually effectively having a private conversation with the Queen. There was sort of there's always a journalist um, sort of milling around, and some of the other VIPs at the event were off somewhere else having a conversation about I don't know what. And so he was there briefing uh, the Queen on his own, uh, and she seemed quite interested. There's a few photos taken of that. Um, and she asked him, you know, this is really bad. You know, why did no one see it coming? And he provided some explanation of all of that. Uh, and then the Queen went off for the rest of the torch. I think she was opening the new academic building, which is in Lincoln's Inn Fields, um, just by Hoban Station. And um, I think after the after it, the journalist came up to him just kind of out of curiosity and said, oh, so what did the Queen say? And and he he told the journalist, oh, she said, why did no one see it coming? And I explained this. And so it wasn't really a kind of a major talking point on the day. But of course, the journalist had thought, well, this is quite an interesting question. It's quite impersonal. And the Queen hasn't yet said anything about the crisis. And so he, I think a day later or two days later, he, he, he woke up and he found all these emails in his inbox from colleagues in Australia and Canada and other places saying, oh, the, I see you talk to the Queen and she asked this and what did you say and, and so on. So that was quite an interesting story. And I thought, well, uh, you know, the sort of final bit to that was because it had been picked up in the press, um, uh, a number of academics were gathered together by the British Academy to provide a formal letter to the Queen, uh, which she got in 2009, a, a year later. Um, and I thought, well, what what would be quite a nice way to end the book would be to have the letter that, having studied this and having learnt about the cycle, a letter which would actually explain, in my view, how things really work and, and send that to the Queen. In fact, I'd even thought well, maybe I could create some social media posts about me posting the letter to Buckingham Palace and uh, and sending a copy of the book. 
anyway, unfortunately, um, because it took me so long to write the damn thing, uh, the Queen sadly passed away last September and and the book didn't come out till this year. So uh, we decided, um, well, I think it'd be fair to say that Harriman House decided for me that um, it wouldn't be appropriate to have it in the have it in the book. But um, if people want to download some additional material, um, they can get that letter that was in the book originally. And I've got the uh, book website in my in notion on the first page. Right. Obviously, we'll share links to to all of those. Um, but yeah, so that's really nice. So people can actually get if, when they buy the book, they can get a link to the the original letter that you wrote to her. Yeah. So I've I've got a book website where people can find out a bit more about the book and also. They can download a pack of additional resources, a few extra charts and um, material of things that didn't make the final cut, including that letter. Tim, what was your perspective of, of the, the run up to the crisis and, um, and, and, and beyond? Because, of course, commodities were doing very well. Gold was, was uh, storming ahead. Uh, we're talking, what, 2008? Yeah. The, it was interesting because at the time I was um, I I I was I just finished working at a company called UBP, and I left under a bit of a cloud because I uh, after I'd given notice they were sort of messing me around on on sort of notice periods and just leaving me sort of dangling, which I'm sure plenty of people have had experience of with previous employers. And uh, in the end, I sort of it, it ended with me sort of putting the phone down on the the guy who ran the London operation, and then within a, mysteriously within about a few seconds, I was escorted off the premises. Oh wow! Um, wow! And so that was that was happening in, as I re- remember, something like June '07. It was the summer of 2007. And uh, the, so what I remember very very distinctly was uh, fr- from the time and thinking it was a big deal was, and I'm sure Aka will remember as well, and you, Paul, the suspension of a few money market funds in europe so there were a few a few probably credit-based funds but money market funds that basically broke so-called broke the buck in other words they actually started trading below their sort of like one dollar or one pound or one euro notional net asset value which is never supposed to happen and i think some of the funds in question were possibly bear stearns funds and others were were, i'm sure were parabar related Mm. um funds so it was clear that all was not well in the in the banking system because when 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 money market instruments, which are basically very short term sort of credit instruments, start which are bit things like T bills or or com- commercial um, certificates of deposit, you no know, commercial credit, when when banks are having are having problems lending to each other in very short term, there's clearly a problem, and as luck would have it. What, what, immediately after I left the offices of UBP, I'd arranged to have a meeting with the guy just around the corner, just off Piccadilly, who was a private investor. I've, I haven't subsequently spoken to him, but I, at the time, it was a sort of fortuitous thing. And I said, well, I noticed these money market funds have started to close. And he said, yeah, uh, how much How much do you know about Northern Rock? Mm-hmm. And he, he, was ahead of, he was ahead of me, so I, I, I wasn't aware that there were any particular difficulties. So the combination of money market fund closures and problems at Northern Rock uh, were, were, were really where I first sort of got an inkling that all was not well. And then I think it's the same period. I subsequently went on holiday while I had my sort of gardening leave. And I think while I was away, we had the run on Northern Rock. So when I came back from holiday, I went over to 
branch of Northern Rock. The day I got back, I went to, to a branch of Northern Rock in um, Golders Green, um, just just to see just to see a bank run in process because I'd never seen one before. Thinking this would be a, 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 a once in a lifetime opportunity. Little did I know what what fate had in store. So it was a quite extraordinary sequence. But the only reason I go on this long preamble is because it took a year from that until Lehman Brothers failed. Mm. So in other words, there were pre-shocks as well as the, the shock itself. That's such an yeah. interesting point. Because it did take a long time and it did seem so obvious when you were in the thick of it that, because I always thought the crisis, I always call it the crisis of 2007 because of all the things that I was watching were moving aggressively in 2007. But it wasn't until 2008, I suppose, the shit really hit the fan. I, I mean, I think one way you could put it, uh, you could articulate it, if, if anyone's seen the film The Big Short, they know just how corrupt and venal Wall Street firms can be and how much they will basically lie and distort and cheat and just keep keep extending and pretending. So probably it ought to have been the crisis of 2007, but 2008 became the point, September 08 became the point when they just couldn't lie and cheat and steal anymore, that it became uh, an, uh, absolutely a public problem. Namely, there was nowhere, nowhere to hide by then. And there, and there was so many political uh, sort of power plays that went on with Lehman's actually going and then Goldman's ending up becoming a retail bank in order I mean, it's to... Almost, it's almost farcical, it really is. the amount of hoops that people jump through to avoid the what would otherwise have been inevitable in, in a properly functioning free market. But out of every crisis comes something good. And I suppose that... that led you on that journey, Akil. It was that event that um, made made you want to learn more about what happened. Yeah, so, I mean, you for us, the kind of really personal stuff started kind of early the following year, I think. So, so the way that I tried to characterize it in the book, um, and actually the story that you've, you've just told him, uh, which I hadn't heard before, but I'd heard stories a bit like it, um, I tried to kind of encapsulate in the story describing the start of the crash in in chapter fifteen of the book is i e that there are some there are some people who have you know who are still active in 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 markets who've kind of seen it before uh, and they they're a bit ahead of the curve and they know a bit more and they're a bit worried and they're kind of on the lookout for problems and they're sort of maybe quietly selling a few things and and getting out. And there are others who are totally oblivious to what's going on and sort of just assuming that things are going well. And there are also some people in the middle who are sort of starting increasingly to get a bit worried. And then you get one problem somewhere and that sort of disappears. And then you get another problem somewhere and that sort of people then sort of try and paper over the cracks. And and then it and then so it kind of almost like it's it starts as pre-shocks and then there's a first wave and then the second wave and then there's sort of maybe a third and then the general total run and bank-wide panic and until you get the general problem um i think authorities and other people and maybe even some investors think that the issue is isolated in one particular part of the market but of course everyone is it's all connected at some level i mean and the interbank market is one one place where you know if banks are stopping not lending to each other then you don't have credit for businesses and if you don't have credit for businesses you get layoffs and then you get massive fall in demand and and then and then a recession and it sort of becomes everyone's problem uh, and so this was the process for us so 
and probably at the time of Northern Rock, you know, sort of the the bank that lent to to my family's business didn't see some issues, um, or or the Bank of England provide enough liquidity into the sort of into the funding markets in the UK to to kind of keep things going for a little bit of time. Um, but eventually, banks were starting to call in loans from from businesses that they that they shouldn't have been doing because we were, you know, other than you know relying on on a line of credit to acquire stock, you know, we were perfectly fine. But of course, the whole business model is premised on borrowing money to buy stock and then you you sell it and, and repay the loan. It's just a wholesaling business. Um, and when that sort of broke uh, in two thousand and nine, I think. Um, memory serves it became a real problem for us uh, and that's that that triggered my sort of interest in all this not not to say that history is going to repeat but just as a rather sobering stat that we we, we incorporated in a presentation recently to clients to institutional clients of our fund and we liberated this this chart from crescat capital um it would be easy to see on the chart so hopefully we can include it in the show notes i'll send you a copy of it afterwards paul but it's basically a chart of bank failures by year by total assets, millions, and number of bank failures. In 2008, there were 150 bank failures, plus or minus, with total assets lost of basically 400 billion, I think it must be, um, uh, associated. Thus far, this was done, I think, in the end of May 2023. There have been virtually no bank failures, but we've had a few high-profile ones, and the amount of assets affected is already nearly $600 billion. So basically, we've already had more wealth destroyed in the banking sector than in 08, and the number of banks affected has barely started to rise. Yeah, the numbers the numbers always get bigger. I mean, that that's the thing, and it's, it's down, in my view, of course. Uh, so firstly, history does repeat, and, and we will see a repeat of history. Um, but uh, it's, in my view, as as you no surprise to to you and, and your listeners, um, linked to the value of land and the value of land increases cycle after cycle, takes most of the gains of progress, uh, and um, so yeah, I think the numbers and it's also increasingly global. So I think the numbers that we will see this cycle are going to be truly staggering. I mean, they're always staggering, but it'd be even bigger than last time. They they always seem too big to get any bigger as it were they always seem mind-bogglingly big and then then um you, tim and i were talking to uh jonathan escott on a on the previous pod and we were going back to 1996 when it just turns out we all bought property and i remember discussing with the guys who i was working with on the desk um for an investment bank that it felt like we were all buying the top of the market and one of one of the guys was buying a property in Barnes and it was literally going up by, you know, tens of thousands of pounds. Uh, it seemed almost like a month. And mm. uh, I had a quick look and we, as I say, we all thought we were buying the top of the market because it was inverted commas going up so, so fast. And also the contrary opinion kind of view is if everyone around you is buying a property, maybe it's a bad time. Um, but it, that it, something I'd like to come back to because that's uh, uh, you know it's an interesting thing when you're dealing with sort of very small numbers and and uh, anecdotal evidence like that because clearly it wasn't the top of the market. There was much more to go. Um, but you look back now and those uh, you know similar property that he paid sort of two hundred fifty three hundred thousand for, which seemed like a huge amount of money at the time, 
they're going for a million and a half now and um, feel equally sort of inverted commas crazy in terms of price. So I guess it always feels like that. But there is a lot of money illusion behind those figures as well. Yeah, inflation obviously is a big, a big issue. Yeah, how much you can borrow and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, th that was one of the reasons why I felt the crisis. Well, there's a few reasons why I thought the crisis would happen. One of them was I used to be a mortgage officer. Literally, I, I would sit with a client uh, for a, in the bank and they would show me their bank statements and we'd calculate their, ingo, their incoming um, funds and their look at their outgoings and multiply it by three and then say, this is how much you can borrow. And uh, then fast forward to, I, I didn't do it for very long. I was just part of a management program that I had to sit on each part of the, um, the, the, the banking sort of system in order to understand it as a whole. And um, it, it was just fascinating that when you sort of fast forward to 2003, 2005, people were just getting mortgages by just writing down, well, this is how much I earn. And the, the bank would give you not only 100%, they give you 110, 120% of what you wanted to borrow, which is pure insanity. Are you may, sorry, Tim. Sorry, sorry um, Akko, this, what may amount to something serendipitous, just a quote that's just whizzed past on my Twitter timeline. The, the quote, the new always happens against the overwhelming odds of statistical laws and their probability, which for all practical everyday purposes amounts to certainty. The new, therefore, always appears in the guise of a miracle, Hannah Arendt. I was that's striking. Mm. We are psychologically predisposed to be astonished at things that should happen a lot more often. Yeah. Mic drop. <laughs> um, I was going to say that, you know, you, your observation about 110% loans and so on, I mean, you're starting to see the amount of down payment required dropping um, you know, in some places, one percent, five percent, ten percent, whatever, and 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 the length of loans getting longer, so you're covering the capital cost over a much longer period, which of course helps with um, servicing debt. Um, interest rates. I mean, nowadays it's considered to be quite a high rate loan at about sort of four, four and a half percent. Um, I mean, I know it's gone up to six, but it's sort of coming down. And if you, you can achieve four and a half and you think, oh, my God, it's really expensive. But I remember when I first bought my place in 2003, 2004, four and a half percent was seen as such a great rate to get. Um, so so the markets have changed. You're getting kind of many of the same issues that we had last time with kind of very high levels of leverage. Um, and um, I think what you also find is that there are there is a lot of competitive pressure in the lending market by new entrants who've got quite low overheads. Um, in this case, because they're mostly online and can make approvals quite quickly, um, uh, and also non so entities without a sort of banking license, but nonetheless able to so they don't have the regulations or the cost of regulations. But they're able to sort of lend money into the into the um, property market, and that puts a lot of pressure on other banks to safeguard their major source of revenue. So, so you think all of those things again? Yeah. So, with that in mind, it's uh, it's it's always very tempting just to look at the the crises points. But what's very interesting about 
the cycle and your explanation, your breakdown of it, is that there's always something interesting happening at a stage in the cycle. And your book is is a breakdown of the journey of that 18 year cycle and a practical guide of what to do at each point in the cycle. Yeah. I mean, it was a bit harder to, um, at least historically, find more of the detail about the earlier stages because no one really writes much about it. Mm. And I make the point in the book is that the very best time to buy is at the start of the cycle, but the best stories are always at the end when get this sort of rampant kind of speculation and all this excess. And, you know, the, the example that I use is from Japan in the 1980s and people trading golf club memberships and breaking records for, you know, Picassos at auctions and so on. Those are really interesting stories and you want to, you want to read about them. And then you also want to read about how badly things can crash on the other, other side of the peak. Um, but no one seems to write much about the start of the cycle when everyone's really kind of afraid and people think, never going to turn around and there's blood on the streets and so on and these are the very best times to be buying so but so also I tried the to hardest time to buy sorry sorry to cut in it's it's um it, it's it's kind of a balance between it might be the best time to buy but it's very difficult to buy at that point because you can't get a loan so you have to have prepared for that you point have to prepare exactly exactly and that means you've got to sort of be quite rational and uh, and disciplined when everything is going over the top so back to your point about um everyone buying property in 2006 um but you know it's it's very difficult i mean i i cite i don't know if i maybe it's in a footnote but certainly was in an earlier draft um i cite the example of ben graham in 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 the 1920s i mean even he you know the father of value investing even he got caught up in 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 the 1920s um uh, roaring 20s bull market uh when he set up his fund and he had some amazing years in in 27 28 um and uh you know he kind of bought a bigger apartment in in manhattan and you know got a chauffeur for his mother and, and so on so i.e in, in other words incurred all these additional living expenses which people tend to do when when times are good uh, and then and then the sort of crash started um and uh, i think the market had fallen sort of 25 percent and uh he was having dinner with a much more experienced investor and the person said i think you need to get out because this market is going to fall much harder and bang and a lot of people thought that after the first uh fall in in the dow jones in in kind of late 1929 early 1930 it come down quite hard and people thought oh this is a correction it needed to happen but it's going to go back up again and this was the moment when irving fisher said it's you know prices have reached a permanently high uh, plateau after the market bounced as they typically do after the first um kind of first wave of of um selling uh, and he he stuck in and of course the the market fell quite a lot more um during 1930 and 1931 so even someone who's programmed to be kind of a, a very sober very calculating investor can get caught up in in the both the sort of hype and then the in the fear and and and, uh, and so on on the other side well the funny the funniest one i know of is uh is isaac newton who who yeah. made a bucket load <laughs> yes. of money in south sea stock sold it all and then because it the, the market kept on going up he bought back in right at the top and lost everything yeah absolutely absolutely um Hashtag and, and human then, nature yeah. never changes exactly 
And I think he's that was the that was the moment he kind of gave that famous quote that I can calculate the motions of the heavens, but or the planets, and but not the madness of people. Yeah, <laughs> he's referring to himself. So the subjects that you tackle in the book are some of them warrant a kind of book on their own: the corruption of economics, uh, how it all ties into why people don't see the cycle, why we're not um, we're not valuing land um and you, you it's it seems as as though that is that has been planned that that's that's actually a design of the system and having been through you know worked in the city talked to economists and sort of wondered why there are certain people who work it out and and understand risk and understand that the basic economic models that are supposed to work don't work yet you still have this high level of academia that seems to influence central banks, government policy, um, individual, you know, even people who are running banks don't really understand how the, the system works, it seems. And, and, and yet um, all the information is there. It's just been hidden. Um, Henry George should be sort of on point one of the economics reading list for everybody studying economics at school and university and yet it isn't but it isn't by design rather than by accident uh, yeah i totally agree um there is actually you I mean you're absolutely right there are a number of topics in the book which which should be a book in their own right and in fact are so the corruption of economics is i i deliberately selected that title because there is a book called the corruption of economics which is co-written by Fred Harrison and a, um, a, a professor from Southern California who's now passed away, Mason Gaffney. Uh, and they, I mean, Mason Gaffney is a, is a um, was an economist, rather, uh, of impeccable academic credentials. And he really understands all the ins and outs of various economic arguments and went through a very detailed review of how the discipline changed and, and um, you know, the sort of intellectual slights of hand that um, brought that about. I haven't been through every single kind of page of that book, but the kind of major gist is is summarised in, in in my chapter. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, so I, I don't, I, I haven't directly been accused of peddling conspiracy theories, and I don't, I tend not to think that, the level of planning is is so precise. I think what it is is that people who have various levels of protected privilege in the system work in a in a relatively local way to protect those privileges. Mm. And over time, because everyone does it and builds on it, over time uh, it amounts to basically locking the system down to benefit um, a wealthy few as opposed to it being a proper open competitive free market where you know everyone is a is a is a price taker and everyone has to sort of live by their wits and skill and so on and but if they do so they have a a fair shot at uh, making a decent living but not a exorbitant one sort of thing um and uh, in the case of the economics discipline i mean henry george he had a an idea that you know you shouldn't be taxing wages you shouldn't be taxing business profits these are rewards for people providing their labor and exertion and an effort and and you know businesses business owners taking calculated risks 
you know, and of course, if you tax them, it distorts economic activities. Very well understood argument all the way from Adam Smith and even before that. Um, and uh, he said, but, you know, you have this sort of class of asset owner, landowners, who kind of sit there, societies invest in infrastructure and get wealthier and and land gets more valuable. And, you know, this is a, 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 the way the system works. Um, Ricardo articulated it. This is how it happens. And this is why we get such great inequality. And you've got this um, class of people who are getting rich but not contributing to to the collective enrichment of, of economies. Uh, and he said that's the that should be the source of, of taxation because not only do you then have a fund from which sort of public value is returned to the public, but in addition to that, you kind of free the market. You, you The land market works efficiently and distributes land to businesses and people in, in a way that sort of reflects what they need, et cetera. You know, uh, sort of the argument of allocating uh, scarce resources. Um, of course, people who uh, uh, own land didn't like that, and they just happened to be people who were, um, couldn't, well, not just happened to be, this is kind of historical um, development as well. They happened to be in control of, of um, in the UK, in control of uh, the upper chamber in, in, the, in Parliament. And in the US, they were obviously very influential with Congress, but also they um funded universities and one of the things that universities couldn't do was to propose things that um might go counter to their economic interests um and uh so one of the things that the academics needed to do was to find a way to ensure that george's proposals would never which were at the time extremely popular and um you know taken up by a lot of different political parties at all levels of government um, they had to find a way to ensure that that proposal could never be feasibly um, put forward again. Uh, and they managed to do that. And the, the consequence of that is you then in, 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 entrench all of these interests. And the genius of subsequent politicians was to ensure that everyone, so kind of the, the sort of dream of uh, a sort of a property-owning democracy, uh, sort of a land-owning democracy, is that everyone is now in a sense, part of the system. So anytime someone comes up with the idea of having a, uh, a tax along the lines proposed by George, you get lots of headlines saying, oh, well, you want a tax on gardens, you want to turf out the granny who can't afford to pay the tax, uh, and so on, because, you know, she's asset rich, but but um, cash poor. Um, it's not really, the, that's not really the point. You can always find solutions to some of these issues, but uh, the point is that the fundamental principle that you you know our system works when you're rewarded for your efforts and you're not rewarded for not making an effort um uh, and you know there's just absolutely no agreement on that point even though i think if you were to put it to someone individually in those terms they would they would think that yes this is how things should be i was thinking just before we came on there uh, that a very good companion piece to Ackles' book is um the creature from jekyll island um, by G. Edward Griffin. And for anyone that doesn't know the book, that's effectively a history, not least of the Fe US Federal Reserve. Okay. But I think I think even now, uh, do, do you know it, Akil? No, I've not heard of it. Um, there's, an, uh, there's an excellent in, uh, presentation by the author 
I think it was recorded in 94 that I found on Spotify a few days ago, but I'm not sure if we can share that. Do you need to have a Spotify account to listen to a Spotify link, Paul? I think you probably do, don't you? Yeah, but I think it's free, so but in essence the very short version is that the, the federal reserve is is not an arm of the u.s government it's a private banking cartel that controls basically all of the money in the u.s and not just there but actually probably most most of the world as well and if you ask most people what the u.s federal reserve was they would say it was probably an arm of the u.s government and it wasn't a private banking cartel that basically calls all the shots and it was instituted basically in very dubious circumstances just before Christmas in 1913. Yeah. So yeah. effectively what I'm getting at is the, we had a, a recent guest on Lawrence Leopard or Leopard uh, and he, he, his watchword is, you know, fix the money, fix the world until you can fix the money properly, have, have, have honest money. None of this nonsense is ever going to change. Yeah. Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, like, there is, I think, the most the most effective um, brutrist now to George's solution. So, I, obviously, I, I approach things through the lens of sort of land and, and so on. Um, the most effective buttress now, in addition to the fact that, you know, we're all kind of ourselves, we own pieces of the land market um, uh, through our sort of, through our properties, uh, is the fact that um, you have the entire sort of monetary system tied to this so you know 80 percent of what banks do is create money that's um that's then secured against pieces of land all over the place i mean so and you know a lot of the monetary developments in in developing countries is simply to create that sort of system and then you entrench sort of money creating powers linked to land uh, highly profitable um you know, people pay off their loans, they go and move to another place, so you can create another mortgage against the same piece of land, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a kind of a perpetual um, money generating machine for for um, the banks that have, you know, privileged, you know, through their license, which in itself is a form of, you know, protected privilege through their banking license, have this sort of almost exclusive right to, to create money uh, for an economy. So, it, you know, there's many, many layers to it now. Um, and yeah, you won't you won't get um, without sort of fundamental reforms. I don't think you'll get a get a, a honest monetary system, unfortunately. So, having studied Henry George, if you could go back in time and talk to him, what would you ask him? Oh, that's a good question. He he sort of lived in an era where um, you know the state was much smaller. Um, and property ownership was much more concentrated. So probably one of the reasons why he was so popular was um, the majority of his audience were renting their places. So I think what I would probably try and ask him is, would he change his arguments or his approach? I mean, not the fundamental economic arguments, but would he change his sort of policy proposals or his approach, given that this is how... Um, things have developed you know after he he was alive you know that i think because he i mean he was a very eloquent speaker and he was a very good writer uh, and very popular um you know again unlike a lot of academics who you know you can't really understand what they're talking about not not all of them are particularly charismatic uh, whereas he was um and so he i think he obviously understood his audience so i would want to know i'd be interested to know how you would approach it 
with the audience having different sort of interests and different thoughts, different levels of education. Um, and the other thing is, because he he was very he's a very clear thinker. He was able to find kind of he was able to see how the system worked in in kind of very clear and express it very clearly. I'd be also very interested to know how he would um, articulate more modern forms of economic rent um, uh, that I try to do in in chapter four. So you know, talking about natural resources, and I mean that sort of fairly obvious, I suppose. But then things like um, uh, rights to fly your satellites on particular orbits. You know, some orbits are better than others, uh, for example. And so, so there, there's an element of of uh, rent there, parts of asteroids and bits of the moon and, and so on. These are all kind of location-based, um, naturally occurring um, like land, effectively. And land is not just physical land. It's any sort of anything freely provided by nature. And so it'd be very, I mean, he would have a very a huge amount to say about uh, all of these new developments, which are sort of happening happening right now. So I think those are the those are the areas. He had quite a lot to say about money, but um, it was in a posthumous work called The Science of Political Economy. So I think if he were alive now, he would probably spend a lot more time talking about sort of money supply and so on. I'd be interested in that. Tim, I, I didn't want to hog the mic, so I was just, uh, <laughs> if you want to jump in with something. Um, I don't know, there's so many questions to ask. Um... I, I've got tons. So, who 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 would you say is the ideal um, model reader for for the Secret Wealth Advantage, Jacko? Um, so probably the core of the core audience um, are the sorts of people I think probably who listen to this podcast, um, and you know they're interested in money, they're interested in investing ideas, but they're also um, skeptical of the world that is being explained to them and are looking for sort of answers that are not kind of readily available elsewhere. I think the book fits all of that. It has some practical ideas on investing. It it basically tells you why cycles repeat and it kind of shows you that actually one of the reasons is that, you know, the world that is explained to you is actually deliberately kind of not how reality works. So I think it t- touches all of those all those bases. Um, I have had a couple of reviews on Amazon from people who said, well, I'm not the target audience for this book because um, I don't not so don't have an investment portfolio and I don't have I don't own a property. But I, you know, I, I wanted sort of a general introduction to kind of economics, not not that I'm you know an economist or have written an economics textbook, but I need to know enough about the things that I read about in the papers to you know, either accept or reject what I'm being told. And so I think I, there's a sort of slightly broader audience who have a general economics, maybe sort of investing or property interest who I think will get uh, something out of the book. I'm also hoping to create a bit of a reaction. So people who really hate the idea of, say, a land tax or or uh, who think the system as it is, is fine and, you know, people should work harder. I, I want to create a bit of a reaction and controversy around that um, because that obviously generates attention for these ideas and exposes some of the the issues that i cover so um um you know uh, ideally there would be some argument about the book but unfortunately it's all been relatively positive feedback so far so i'm clearly getting hold of the core audience but maybe not 
the people who might uh, dislike uh, dislike the argument. We we have quite a range of people who listen to the podcast. There's some who are obviously. Paul's you know, mum, my my mum. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and that's maybe Akil's mum now. <laughs> yeah, uh, have has have you gifted your mother's a copy of the book? <laughs> I'd be happy to sign it. Oh yeah, I've got mine signed. I'm 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 just yeah, I'm very happy with that. Um, so I I was going to say that um at uh, an event in Manchester, a lady overheard my voice, Imogen, and uh, we got into a discussion. She recognized me from the podcast. So I thought that was, that was really nice. And we got into a conversation about how, um, I, I think that perhaps sometimes when we speak on the podcast, we don't realize that, that things that we take for granted for people who are, uh, interested might seem things that we think are simple actually aren't quite as simple as, as we, we think. And, and what I like about your book is you have actually simplified things to the point where I think even if you haven't, if, if you're just interested, um, you don't need any technical knowledge. It's so beautifully it's, it's explained. Very, it's very easy to read and there's it's, no jargon in there. So. Well, the, the, the previous book that I read that was as easy to read was Tim's, um, you know, investing through the looking glass and it's, uh, it's uh, it, it's so nice. You can just read it and get the points quickly, and that's the mark of a really good book. And it's it, um, so I think no matter what your background and whoever you are, you should read the book um, because even if you don't think it's going to affect you, it's actually go. It has to affect you because you know it, 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 the, the world of investment will be thrust upon you, whether you like it or not. And that means when perhaps you, you're starting your career, when you're ending your career. Um, I, I know somebody who was, uh, he was trying to get his book sold and he was selling it in 2007 and the crisis, or 2008, and the crisis came along and the publishers wouldn't take the book. And then a few years later, they did take the book. So that's an example of somebody who has nothing to do with finance and was completely affected by the, the the crisis so the timing will affect us all and to have an, a proper understanding of that in itself is a huge advantage and some of the comments that you've got about or have had you know feedback about the book is it's many books talk about secrets and you know learn this secret you get it on youtube sort of clickbait stuff and it in, in many ways people don't really believe you're going to get certain secrets but in this case it's actually on the money there are things in in this book that you that you may not have understood but understanding it and and being party to it does give you an advantage that um that that many won't have uh well thank you very much for that um feedback so i i mean i tried to write the book that i wished i'd had in 2007 2008 uh, and at that time i didn't know anything about economics um in fact, uh, I was—I had such poor knowledge of it um, that I, around that time, I decided I need to do something about it. And it just so happened that I'd been introduced to Henry George at school, and I—he was a brilliant writer. And so I went straight back to him as a first kind of dive into economics. Just you know, just very coincidentally, it's a very odd place to start in in trying to learn about economics. Um, uh, and and so you know the, my knowledge at the time was really limited um if i'd had 
the book that I wrote, I think I would have got it, you know, so I try to make it quite simple and easy to understand. Um, and it would have also practical. So it would have given me some suggestions on what to do to to be prepared. And I know we made some, you know, as you do in a, when thing, when times are good, we made some big investments in uh, my family, that is my family's business in 2007, 2006, 2007, which uh, had the you know the boom continued would have probably been pretty good investments but of course it didn't uh, and that turned out to be you know over investing at a time where you should be preserving cash um, uh, and then that would have kind of maybe alleviated some of the problems that we had when the bank started calling in loans so yes I think everyone um, everyone's affected by the cycle so I think everyone could get something out of the book um, of course realistically only people are sort of interested in in finance and investing will sort of naturally gravitate towards a title which mentions wealth and profiting and and so on but uh, um i did i did say to someone uh, when i started developing the proposal uh, back in, two, in 2020 um that uh, i think you know realistically it's this is the core audience um but there really should be a copy in my view on every shelf in the world um uh, uh maybe one day that will be the case i doubt it um but yeah i mean i i think you're right it's you you, you we're all affected by the ebbs and flows of the economy if you want to make a real difference you're trying to get into the schools because the there is a notional obligation on the part of the regulator to improve financial awareness but the reality is it doesn't happen and once you can get into schools, you can you can start affecting meaningful change because by the time you you started them you started a career, it's already arguably too late. Yeah, that's true. That's a very good point. Um, well, if there are any head teachers listening to this podcast, <laughs> they should give me a call. Um, yeah, I mean, I and it's 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 a good point because um, I was at one of these. I think it was a business networking event in 2018. Um, and I just so happened to um, start chatting to a, um, I think he was head of the economics department at Trinity School, um, things down in Croydon or something. Uh, I think it's Trinity, I can't remember exactly. Anyway, he invited me to give a talk to some of his sixth formers, um, and they had a bit of an economics day, and he'd got in a couple of people from the city and elsewhere. Uh, and I gave a presentation on the cycle, and you know I could see that num- not maybe not everyone was that interested, but there were quite a few pupils who um, were were quite interested. And in, actually, I got a lot of questions about whether <laughs> whether it was a good time to buy Bitcoin and uh, and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, I mean there is, there is sort of fertile ground, and actually um, I didn't put this in the book, but um, the newsletter that I wrote for Southbank investment research back in the day which formed the basis of the chapter on money um started out by uh, a quote from samuelson or something uh, samuelson the guy who wrote the um uh, economics textbook that's been the foundation for the economics disciplines in the second world war um saying that you know he needs a tabula rasa he needs a clean slate of young economic minds to mold um uh, you know, in in terms of his way of economic thinking, so so yes, it's a, it's a good thought. Um, I'll see what I can do about that. You were thinking of ways to potentially promote the book. 
Um, and um, by the way, shout out to Rowena, who was at the book launch as well. Um, that just reminded me. Um, have you given any more thought to potentially uh, what methods you might use to promote it in terms of, say, a podcast or maybe even some form of course or or, or um, you've got it's got its own website, hasn't it? So, um, what what are your plans for promotion at this stage? Um, at this stage, uh, I think it'd be fair to say that plans are still being formulated. Um, <laughs> So, so I've had to, you know, so now we're over two months since, um, since publication, the first round was getting cajoling, um, shaming my own subscribers into buying it. Um, so I have had a good reaction from them. Of course, I had not expect anything different. Um, I'm, I'm now trying to do the rounds on podcasts, um, particularly in the US, because not just a much bigger market, but a um, number of the examples are drawn from uh, US history. So I think there's a natural fit there. Have uh, you, on that on that topic, uh, Michael, have you approached a Palisades Gold yet? No, I actually hadn't heard of that podcast until the other day, because I was looking for a uh, interview by, uh, anyway, I can't remember, but I came across it. So yes, I, I've heard of it now, but um, I've not. So if you'd like, like, you like an intro to Tom Bodrovich, who's the, the host, I'd be more than happy to do so, because I was on about a couple of weeks ago. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, that would be great. And they've got a very, very large and devoted following. Great. I think that sounds that sounds perfect. So uh, yeah, between now and the end of the year, I'm on my US leg of my podcast tour. So um, this would this would be a great fit. And then you know, hopefully, once I every time I appear on um, a podcast, I'll ask the host if there's anyone else I can approach, and, and hopefully there'll be a few more. I, I um, it's not been released yet, but I spoke on um, this podcast called Standard Deviations, which is run by Daniel Crosby, who is also a Harriman author. Um, and he's he's very into behavioral economics. Um, and yeah, we had a quite interesting conversation. So obviously, we all have our own take on, you know, why economies go from boom to bust. And so, you know, for some people, it's uh, Tim, I guess you're in this camp, it's, you know, it's kind of corruption of the money supply and, and so on. Um, for Daniel, it's, uh, you know, investor irrationality, which, you know, bursts out in in periodic episodes of outright speculation and you know all, all along the way we have these sort of irrational blind spots which um uh, which cause us to make difficult decisions which end up costing us um so yeah it's uh it's it's been it's been very interesting uh to so far and hopefully a few more podcasts to come uh, and then after so sorry and then to answer the question um after that yeah no i don't know i, I mean i've um I think an introductory course as a way into the book, I think would be a great idea or even as a, as a, as a, as a way of taking some of the ideas in the book forward. And the other thing, and I've, I think I've mentioned this on this podcast before is trying to turn some of the book into a documentary or uh, some other, you know, maybe a podcast series or something to, as a gateway into the idea of a cycle and, and so on. So maybe the corruption of economics chapter, which we've talked about, uh, could be a, a subject for that. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so given that the book talks about the 18.6 year cycle and Kondratiev, uh, 
there are other cycles at play, aren't there? And um, how does one uh, sort of balance where you are with all the other cycles that are that are prevalent in the markets? I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I deal with the 18-year cycle in the book, and I mention Kondratiev because it will be, it will have a bearing on the final years of of the current 18-year cycle. So I thought it's, you know, you can't really, you need you need to know about it. Um, um, I think these are the two dominant ones, particularly the 18-year cycle, in the sense that you know land is such an important factor of production, as I say in the book, and and so, you know, when when the land market turns down and when the banking system follows it. You know, you, you know, it has a very major economic effect. Um, and so regardless of where you are in other cycles, uh, you're going to feel it. Um, uh, there are, you know, short-term inventory cycles. People talk about four years and uh, and so on. And, and they, you can see sort of ebbs and flows, which, you know, affect kind of GDP data in a particular year uh, and so on. But I don't think, um, you know, if you're if you're in a particular industry, um, you might be affected by those, but it, as a general investor looking to the long term, I don't think it matters too much. Um, or at least you, you know, you don't need to, you won't need to, won't feel a sense of panic, and you won't need to kind of sell it in the downturn. It might affect you making, for example, specific business decisions. Um, so I don't. I try and keep things simple. The reason that I mentioned the Kondratiev wave, which is a longer-term, fifty-five to sixty-year cycle, which is covered in um, chapter eleven of the book, is because that's related to uh, technology. Um, I think specifically the way in which new technologies are absorbed uh, into the economy and how they kind of change and disrupt existing industries. So. So when that happens, they're very turbulent times. They're very interesting times technologically, and there's all sorts of new businesses springing up and new ways of doing things. They're also very turbulent times because they're very disruptive. A lot of people lose out because they're working or in, in the older industries. Uh, and then the other effect of a uh, Kondratiev cycle is because they tend to be um, – fairly and sorry you might be hearing a helicopter in the background it's one of bill gates's black helicopters yes exactly um it's it's kind of hovering over my street sorry about that um you get um you get sort of major powers coming into conflict because um one thing that technology requires is lots of raw materials uh, and, and creation of new industries you know new opportunities and and big countries want to control access to those resources and they want to control how new industries develop and obviously take advantage of those uh, and so you get a lot of geopolitical conflict and we've got all of those things while well, they've been going on since 2000 but they're in, you know uh, increasing in intensity over the last uh, sort of five years i think uh, and i think the next five years you'll see uh, uh, ramping up of even sort of fairly elevated levels of tension so i wanted people to be aware that while um while we're approaching the final years of the 18 year cycle things will be very turbulent very emotional it will seem um well it's very be very difficult to stay on an even keel during all of that fred harrison's expecting a massive correction and is extremely bearish for the end of the cycle whereas you're not quite so bearish and you've got a different take on it. Um, 
you've attributed that to being having quite a contrary sort of outlook. But where I'm trying to square the circle here is is Fred Harrison is not the sort of person that I would like to bet against. Um, mm-hmm. What makes you feel not confident, but why why do you why do you feel that he he might be wrong? Um. Well, I don't necessarily feel he's wrong. It's just that I I would need to see. So I I work off the principle that um, if you get a really really severe crisis, you have to have a really crazy boom beforehand. And I don't think we've really had kind of so that a level of craziness that we saw, for example, between 1926 and 1929 in the US or or Japan in the late 80s. Um, which le- both led to really for the, for for the US and for Japan in in their respective areas led to really significant crises um of the nature that sort of Fred is talking about uh so so i bet you know that might happen over the next 2 to 3 years um you know you're seeing signs of it in certain places but not this sort of general all out um kind of going for it in kind of kind of mania madness type of thing um if we do get that, then I probably would come round to Fred's view, but I haven't seen that yet. Um, I think the other thing that I um, maybe slightly have slightly different views on is um, he, he, I mean, the reason that he's really bearish is he sees three or four different crises all converging at the same time. So there's kind of war with China. There's, um, you know, climate related crises and and for him it's sort of it's not sort of abstract he thinks this will you know in some parts of the world that are you know in in climate stressed regions you know no 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 access to water and so on he says that will create a massive um migration out of those zones which is you know this is historically what people do particularly in difficult times um and European countries where a lot of them will try to get to are not in any way able to cope with an influx of of that number of potential um, refugees. And there's no political will to do so either. In fact, it's you know probably the opposite. Uh, and so that creates in itself kind of major conflict. Um, so you've got all these different kind of conflicts happening at the same time as a major economic downturn uh, and uh, and and um, a political system that's unable to handle all these crises individually, let alone simultaneously. I mean, looking at the news at the moment, you can probably say that he has a fair point. Um, I suppose I'm slightly different in the sense that I think that, you know, firstly, you may not necessarily get quite this, that level of reaction to, to, a, to a downturn. Uh, and secondly, there is I mean, while there are a lot of difficulties, and I'm not in any way saying that our economic system is perfect, there are also enormous developments going on um, that I think are uh, are quite positive. I mean, they're very disruptive, but I think we are, you know, building um, the foundation for a very technologically advanced society. And, and, you know, some of the, you know, issues where perhaps power has been concentrated in, in certain elements of society in certain institutions, I think all of those are being challenged. And that while that is quite disruptive, it also creates the potential for, you know, more open societies to be created uh, in the future. Now, we might not all agree with 
some of the developments taking place. I certainly don't. Um, but it does suggest to me the possibility that things will evolve in a way that we can't yet foresee. So I'm, a, I'm a leaving that as a possibility um, for what might emerge out of the the major problems that we should see at the if I'm right in my thesis that we should see at the end of the decade. Uh, so that's that's the main point of difference. But you know, you know, time will tell. Um, and if we get some truly crazy behaviour over the next couple of years, then I might come round to his view. And I, I should say uh, to your listeners who might not be familiar with Fred that um, he's been writing about the cycle since uh, the early 80s. And in fact, he was the one who rediscovered the cycle um, in the in the 70s. And so, so he's been really uh, important for my work, of course. Um, but also, he has a track record of, of forecasting. Um, the end of the cycle and the date of the next major crisis. Uh, uh, in he did that in 1983. He did it again in 97, uh, and so he has a very clear public record of being able to read the cycle and use it to make um, pretty impressive uh, predictions. What's What's fascinating about Fred Harrison is that he actually tried to influence government policy directly. Was trying to advise um, Gordon Brown's cabinet as to what yeah. they should do and it's quite phenomenal to that that you see despite the good advice they i don't know perhaps this is a, a a question that people sometimes ask is with with more and more people knowing about the cycle will it change the cycle will it st will it suddenly stop um but it seems if he can't get with that level of access um you know the politicians to see what's going on it seems very unlikely that it will it will change, partly because it's human nature, but partly because when you're in the thick of something, everybody thinks, yeah, this is different now. It's not, it's, that was how it was before. Past history feels so ancient and, and um, we're always so much smarter now and we know, we know better, but actually the truth is quite the reverse. Yeah, uh, it, it is. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, so he does have some um i think strong connections in in various places and probably some people who who are well connected who you know actually agree with his thesis um but not enough people do uh and yeah there's always the sort of siren call of this time is different it looks different we have different tools it's a different era and so on um and, and you know fundamentally some people just don't believe that these cycles exist um uh, and and they're they're you know uh, they're not they're not going to be open to being told that they do. Um, Fred tried to advise the Bank of England in late two thousand six uh, that uh, you know I think we've reached the peak of the cycle. It's time to you know get ready. And you know my my business partner Phil Anderson was in the room at the time, and he said um, everyone started laughing. So so you know you know you're not you're not going to get sort of mass awareness of the cycle with that. And I'm certainly not going to sell enough copies to to do it myself i remember talking at a um housing developer about the cycle in in um i think it was in 2014 so one of um one of my friends who actually has also studied henry george uh, and sort of come across my work um he used to work there and he arranged a uh, sort of a, you know sometimes people put on these lunchtime seminars, and so he he arranged um, 
a lunchtime seminar at this place. And this this developer, it survived the crisis, but they'd had to um, sell off some stock in really nice locations at very low prices in in 2009, just to kind of shore up their balance sheet. So they'd been directly affected by the crisis. Um, and he thought, well, you know, they'll be receptive to the idea that actually you can predict how these cycles work and you can plan accordingly. So we set up this uh, seminar and we, you know, I take them through the, the history of the cycle and how it's sort of repeated in the US since 1800. And you can see it very clearly in in data on land sales. And if you read the history of the times, you can see that after the housing market went down or the land market went down and the housing market went down, you got a major economic crisis and a banking crisis. And, you know, people who were exposed to that had to sell assets at you know, ridiculously low prices because they couldn't cope, etc. She thought that you'd be they'd be quite receptive to the idea, but he'd invited a couple of board members along, and one of them kind of came in late, stood at the back by the window, listened for about thirty seconds, and walked straight out again. And that I think sent a signal to the rest of the room that this wasn't really worth paying attention to. Um, and really, the only real question that I got at the end of it was someone who was thinking about buying his first house, <laughs> came up to me at the end and said, oh, so do you think it's a good time to be buying? <laughs> that was basically it. That was the level of interest. Oh so, God. you know, you're in you're in the property industry. You're, you're working for a company that um, was badly affected by the last crisis and you're not particularly interested. So, I mean, I think that tells you all you need to know. Yeah, it's amazing how closed off some people can be to good information and um i partly partly maybe it's because they think they know better which i think defines the difference between professionals and amateurs because professionals always assume they don't and they've there's more to learn whereas i think amateurs think they know it all um but um but also it's it's just people have their own models of how things work and just don't don't think things like this are even possible and uh it's uh I've, I've come across similar lack of engagement in what i would say is good information and even if you're wrong you should always listen to an argument um and just try to find how it might not work so yeah that that's that mm. that's really interesting so tim have, have you have you got any more questions from your perspective because i've just got a few more that i'd like to ask but yeah go, no go, go for it paul go for it okay um so uh, one of them is a technical question about valuing land which is extremely difficult now I, i've recently got my um house insurance in and you can see that the value that they the rebuild cost is obviously markedly different to the value that you would get if you actually sold mm. sold the house is that one way of potentially getting to the value of the land which is so important and the the missing the missing value that that uh, seems to be airbrush from economics yeah that sort of residual method so you you look at the the price of uh your house in the marketplace i mean of course you'd have to actually sell it to get a proper price until that's just kind of someone's assessment yeah um and then the the rebuild cost uh, and then the difference is the value of the location that's definitely one way of doing it i think you can get a um a bottom-up assessment uh, based upon rental yields and other things uh as well 
Um, oh yeah, that's a clever way. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there, I think there, there is, there is a, um, there is a sort of an industry in terms of land valuation, uh, even in, even in places where they don't measure much, uh, in terms of urban land, for example. So, so certainly not things that have been built on. Um, but even, even, so even in the UK, you can value land and the people that do that. Um, but you know, there are countries such as Japan and Australia where, they value land much more regularly and much more comprehensively. So it's it's definitely possible. And I think in in this era with AI and all the sort of technology, I think actually it's probably rather straightforward. Certainly a lot more straightforward than trying to work out um, what a company is doing via its, uh, its uh, published accounts, for example. Right. But so practically there isn't like the equivalent of a government sort of uh, database that you can just query like you know where we get data for all the other things or or the land registry no. so no. um yeah and how much delay is there between this cycle in the US which is obviously the dominant cycle being the biggest economy the UK and Europe and if i could just put into the mix of that how does china and asia fit into that cycle and how does it either sort of um like with waves does do the waves sort of cycles push together to make a bigger cycle or work slightly against each other can you look at those cycles separately and then kind of add them together to see whether you're going to get a super cycle is is that possible um or is everything just dominated by the us it's if we take the last uh cycle which was i suppose the last cycle where you know western g7 countries were the majority of the world economy uh you know so the last sort of the last hurrah of western dominance should we say um the the us land market peaked sometime in i mean some people say late 2005 other people say sometime in 2006 but around that time the housing market so this is the land market the housing market sometimes disguises falls in the land market because you know, there's a lot of buying and selling of, of real estate um that was probably sometime in late 2006 early 2007 and it started to fall and so just to go back to previous thread of conversation the first sort of i think um first sort of increase in foreclosures in california happened at the start of 2007 so you had a bit of a blowout in credit spreads in i believe february 2007 and then a bit of a sell-off in in the stock markets around then. So that was probably the first um, kind of international sort of understanding that there was something going on in the credit markets. Um, so so you had that, and then um, you had the stock market peak pretty much at the same time in October two thousand and seven. And the stock market across the globe is more synchronized, um, just because you know the way of movement of capital and so on. Um, I believe the UK housing market peaked around that time. European housing markets, I think, went on a bit longer um, into 2008. Uh, Australia, well, Australia, the housing market paused um, probably for a couple of years, but didn't really go down uh, in 2007, 2008. And they then got massive stimulus checks from the Rudd government I believe in 2008, 2009, so my knowledge of the dates is now getting a bit hazy, uh, which boosted things I th 
at least economically, maybe in some parts of the housing market. Um, so they didn't really see much of a downturn, also partly because one of the effects of the crisis was massive stimulus by the US and China. And Chinese particular stimulus is building lots of infrastructure. And so that created massive demand for raw materials, which of course was supplied largely by Australia. So um, we had a, you know, we had a rolling sequence of peaks and falls from around uh, 2006, I'd say, to 2008, 2009. Uh, and, you know, that's the sort of working hypothesis for this one. But of course, in this era, um, the large developing countries collectively, uh, you know, make a very large share of the global economy. Um, we don't have much historical data on how they react to these things. We know that they all reacted to the last crisis, so that's so probably they're going to um, they're going to follow the same uh, kind of pattern this time around. But it's a bit of a hypothesis still. Uh, and China, China is the interesting card in all of this. I do believe they they do follow the cycle, um, but they also have a very interventionist fiscal system. And so they really tried to cool down the property market in 2017. And you can get away with doing that because you're not dependent on people voting for you. Whereas if you try to really tamper with the property market in the UK, you'd be kicked out of office pretty quickly, I think. Um, and so you've had issues in the, in the housing sector since 2017, um, which has really come home to roost now that interest rates are much higher in the last couple of years. Uh, but you're they're now stimulating the property market again and there's, there's some signs that in large cities um uh, apologies again for the for the aircraft um it's uh you're seeing sort of large city uh, buyer interested supporting first-time buyers um lowering mortgage rates lowering down payment requirements um kind of cutting taxes in a way that will enable people to manage you know the high healthcare and um child care costs and so on um so i i think the chi the chinese property market will pick up again and it may not have a major kind of uh boom into the forecast peak date around 2026 but uh, remains to be seen but in other emerging markets such as saudi arabia and you know united i don't know if you can count the emirates as emerging markets uh, anymore uh, in parts of Indonesia and across East Asia, you're getting exactly what you would expect at this point in the cycle. You know, enormous construction, really tall buildings, really crazy schemes, a lot of investor interest uh, and so on. So it appears that they are uh, very much on track um, uh, for, a, for a peak later this decade. So I was going to. Oh, did that answer your question? I, I, yeah, yeah, no, it was a brilliant answer. It's a very detailed. You you alluded to it there. How crazy is crazy? How do we? That's the tallest building um, indicator, which is kind of very well known. Um, actually, is well, it's kind of it, I've heard of it sort of a long time ago, but actually um, predicting the peak from the tallest building or the craziness is can be difficult because there are some crazy things that are going on right now um i guess when you're studying it with the cycle you have to put everything together it's not just the tallest building it's where you are in the cycle and how much bigger it is and, and, and because as far as i know within the uk um 
is there a t- tallest building being built in London? Probably not. I suppose there's not much space for it. But yeah, I've just seen I've just seen a new story about um, the tallest building in the city. Oh, so that's right. On, that's on the pods. Okay. Yeah, that that's yeah. so that's... not not it won't be taller than the shard. It will be about the same height, um, and it will be some. I think there's a big kind of empty site somewhere. I think it's the last really big empty site somewhere near Bishopsgate. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I mean, what they're doing in uh, in in the Middle East seems to be there seems to be a a lot of crazy going on there, like di- mm. di- orders of magnitude and. Um, yeah. I guess that that's another sign, but although that then how are they related to the cycle? You know, their, their government is extremely, uh, is very different to ours and, and other Western, um, uh, economies. So therefore they, they have the potential to influence the cycle in a completely different way. Are you, do you look at that just from a psychological point of view rather than how they may influence the cycle? Cause they're too small really. So, to reverse influence what what's going to happen in America or over here or in Europe. Well, I mean, the a downturn in say the Riyadh property market is not going to have global impact. But what you know, problems in Saudi Arabia will have a direct impact by the fact that um, you know a sign of a country going through a major kind of real estate property economic boom is that they take their surpluses uh, and they go and buy assets in other countries at often inflated prices. And so a very good example of this is uh, Japan in the 1980s. And I think there's one story which I cite in the book about how they, you know, they're buying all these, um, you know, building all over Hawaii and buying up buildings all over California, LA and places. And some of that made it into Hollywood movie scripts because, you know, people are feeling a bit bit of unease at all of this sort of Japanese purchasing. Uh, and they've also bought the Exxon building in New York. And their opening offer price was so much above the asking price that the seller had to consult lawyers to check that they could actually accept something that was so high. So you you know you get all these kind of uh, acquisitions at, at silly prices. Now what we are seeing with Saudi Arabia is exactly the same thing, but this time with respect to sporting uh, franchises and, and and Premier League clubs and and, and so on. Um, so they have a very direct impact on um, local uh, sort of how locals perceive what's going on, and also potentially if they are uh, a source of finance for for larger institutional investors or or, or even they own parts of banks. Um, when they turn down, that can lead to a withdrawal of capital, which then has a, a probably a very large effect in in local markets. One of the last questions I'm going to ask was is from Twitter uh, from George, who I would say George, if you haven't bought a copy of the book, you really, really should. Um, he's asking. So George says. Could you ask him the following? Has he found in his research over the many 18.6 year cycles that as a rule of thumb, when house rental yields are less than half of the interest rates being charged, i.e. interest rates say at 6% and rental yields are say at 2.5%, is that the top of the cycle? Do you look at it in that, in that detail? Is it, isn't it more important that it's 
part of the cycle rather than the actual rental yields falling or rising below a certain level? So I think the short answer is no, I don't look at it like that. Um, I think the general observation about how things work is that um, as prices get higher towards the peak, the um, rental yields go down, I think probably across the board. I mean, that's one sign of um, the final stages of the boom. Uh, and so, and also, as I say in the book, towards the end of the cycle, money becomes tight. And so that pushes interest rates up. So not because central banks are necessarily pushing interest rates up, though they might be um, at the short end of the yield curve, but because, you know, there's so much demand for bank credit that um, they can start to charge higher interest rates. Um, and so, and so in that scenario, rental yields will be below um, uh, kind of uh, interest rates potentially. And that's a sign that, uh, you know, the property market has gone far too far. Um, I don't know about any specific ratio because interest rates are kind of quite different in different periods of time. Um, even though property rental yields are generally, you know, the most they'll be in London is 4% sort of thing. Um, and the, the other thing to bear in mind is that um, yields can be very different in different locations. And I think this is kind of the key point is that it's not a, there's no general, um, uh, it's not like the stock market where there's the price of a share, it's, it's, it's a certain amount, you know, at the price of a house and the yield on a house in London is very different to sort of Inverness or Sunderland or or Manchester. Though Manchester's maybe starting to resemble London a bit. But you know, you know what I mean? It's it's very location based. And, and so I'm also in America, which is Yeah, the, the I'm also in America. Um and so really what you need to be worried about is when you get rental yields resembling London at the outskirts of a very small city where there's been a huge amount of building where um, where there's not the sort of demand, constant demand for that product. And so I'm not sure that a specific ratio would would tell you that much. That's kind of my hunch. I haven't researched it. If George would like to um, and share the findings with me, I'd be very interested. But um, I'm not I'm not sure it's uh, quite as simple as is that uh, that suggestion. Great. and. Um... Whilst you didn't find writing the book cathartic, certainly at the time, <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, now that it's over, is it a bit like, could it be a bit like when people run marathons and they say never again, but then after a little while... We'll have children. <laughs> <laughs> so, is there a possibility of something like the little book of the 18.6 year cycle or, or some follow-on work? Or is it too early to ask that? Um, it's probably too early, but I do have a couple of ideas. So um, actually, the suggestion of writing an even simpler book is a good one. Um, I don't know. I don't know how I would uh, I would approach that. And and certainly, probably that's <laughs> it's probably a bit too soon to pick up the copy that I've written and and try and and try and edit it even further if you if um, you wrote it so that it would appeal to this perspective of a four-year-old you could also sell it onto the central bank market as well <laughs> yeah actually you asked me who my target audience was and maybe andrew bailey or or um or jerome powell should be should be on the 
<laughs> on the list for the second version. Um, so that's one possibility. I mentioned um, writing a script for a documentary or a podcast series. That's certainly another piece of writing, though not necessarily another book um, for this current version. And then um, the other two pieces that I might, well, I, I think I probably will seriously consider doing, I'm not necessarily committed to doing it right uh, right now or indeed at all, is um, going with a Kondratiev theme um, and the, the period that we're coming into being very turbulent and so on, um, maybe something on war cycles. Um, and I think the, that would have a much more ex- explicit aim of of showing how the um, the ingredients for fermenting war um, are now kind of they now exist and 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 people are putting them together and and they are creating you know the first sort of skirmishes in what might be a more widespread conflict um and so i would kind of point that out and i'd also try to point out here are the mechanisms by which populations are led potentially against their will into war and how they're manipulated and so it'd be more as a as a as a guide to you know encouraging people to being very skeptical of the claims that are made because you know obviously no one even even victors don't really benefit uh, from from war uh, and uh, and that and it's only the kind of the people who control everything who who benefit everyone else sort of pays the cost for it so so I want to try and avoid that and that would be my contribute contribution to that and then the final thing um at some point, probably in the crisis, um, or uh, when it really seems things really seem difficult, and when people will be searching for answers, is a a book to really simply and hopefully persuasively um, uh, point to solutions. Um, you know, along the lines of Henry George is is my favoured solution, but how it might work practically. Um, and the reason for that is um, because when you get really difficult times, people are very open to ideas about why things have gone wrong and and, and why things uh, could be better. And often those solutions are peddled by people who have got a sort of a different agenda. Uh, and so things can go in a very dark turn if we do get a very deep crisis. Um, you know, people in in the 1930s were very receptive to to people like Hitler. Um, explaining things in terms of kind of race and and other things. So I want to provide material to avoid that scenario because when you get revolutions or when you get things like this, who knows where you'll end up. Um, And I don't think we need to go down those routes. So I want to maybe contribute to that as well. So um, I'd love to know what you do to relax. And in that vein, we could look at media picks but i'm just going to pop to the loo um maybe if, if tim you can give me a chance to think of something yeah maybe tim if you could yeah so just give us a minute or maybe tim if you could tell us yours and then we'll get back to you uh Akil. so i'll be back in a sec i'm I think just it looking would, at one <laughs> i think it would be a disservice to the book if if i chose anything else so for me the the media big is going to be a book called the secret wealth advantage how you can profit from the economy's hidden cycle by Akil patel very published, good. Har- published Harriman House, available from all good book sh- bookshops online and uh, at a bookshop near yourself. Thank you so much. Um, 
Was um was getting the thing published as what, what you expected it to be? What, what, what were, the, what were the, the the good aspects of it that maybe were a surprise? So I had a good uh, editor, this chap called Nick Fletcher, um, and you know I think the draft that I gave him was was decent, but he did make some suggestions that led to some pretty important changes, um, which I think really helped with the flow and readability. Um, I think Harriman have generally been quite open to supporting me promote the book. Um, so that's been that's been really nice, though. The onus, as you, I think you pointed out when we had an initial chat way back in 2020, uh, the onus is very much on the author to to do all the hard yards on that. Um, so uh, so that, those have been two things. I also um, I quite enjoyed hearing the person who read out the audio version. Um, I did offer my own <laughs> my own voice, and I got a long list of reasons for why that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> why Why um, was that? Why? Well, I mean, so I, I sort of I made the point. Well, you know, Penguin business authors um, read out their own works in general, and so why not Harriman authors? Uh, and I, you know, I said I'm the one who'll have the best relationship to the text, and you know, my voice is reasonable. It's not, you know, it's not. Hollywood-esque. It's not as resonant as Tim's voice, but it's it's not bad. Um, but uh, they said, well, it's not going to help with sales and it'll take you ages and you've got to book out a studio and the editing will be longer because, um, you know, you'll, you'll make more mistakes uh, and so on. I mean, I think these are reasonable points. And for me, the, the clincher was for not taking any further was I didn't really have the time to spend a week or so uh, reading the thing out. And uh, so that was that was. Um, uh, that was that. Maybe next time I'll, if I write another book, I'll read it out. Um, but yeah, the publishing process was um, far more complicated than I thought it would be. You know, a lot of things to think about at sort of funny times. You know, you got to decide on the back cover blurb fairly early on, and the the how the cover might look. You know, I was sort of still writing the first draft when we finalised all of that. But there's um, something immensely satisfying about having a physical book in your hand that you wrote, isn't there? Very much so. Um, and it was actually put on the shelves by Waterstones a few days before the um, the official launch date. Uh, but going into a Waterstones and seeing it on the shelf was also really... I mean, I I, I, know, I didn't... The only sort of um, hesitation I had with Harriman was I thought they almost exclusively sold online. Uh, and so I wasn't sure that I'd ever get to see it on a bookshelf in a in a bookshop bookshop. And um, uh, I was actually going to take a book and stick it on the shelf and take a photo of it <laughs> just to show it had been on it. But but yeah, no, I was really pleased to see it on a shelf, and it was quite a big moment for me. Um, I even had a conversation with uh, someone in Hatchards on Piccadilly, uh, which is now owned by Waterstones, and and I was looking for a copy of the book. Um, and I was asking the guy at the desk and we were looking for it. And it hadn't been shelved yet. So it was on the My top. name, it's J.R. Hartley. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it was that. And he, there's a guy who was buying a load of books um, in the business section and he heard us talking about it. And so he, he came up to me and said, oh, that sounds interesting. Do you know who the author is? Oh, wow. Um, and I said, well, funny you should ask that. And so we had a conversation about the book and he ended up buying that copy. So... So that was probably the first physical sale. Did you sign um, it for him? I did, yeah. Oh, brilliant. 
Brilliant. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Yeah. So, so you used to translate Latin. Do you still do that? And I do. And, yes. Right. And why? Why do you translate Latin? I mean, just for fun, or is there there another purpose? Is are, are there are there secret texts that that uh, have been lost to time that you suddenly <laughs> uncover? No. Um, I mean, not not particularly secret. I um, I mean, there may be, but this is not one of those. Um, no, I studied I studied classics at university. Um, so Greek and Latin, ancient history, literature, philosophy, and um, the so the the place where I where I learnt my economics. Uh, so Henry George and other you know after I read Henry George, I did a course on introductory economics at the uh, School of Philosophy and Economic Science, which is um, near Bond Street Station. It's the place where I held my book launch, and um, they also. The people people who study economics there there's also a faculty on philosophy and the renaissance and and various other things um and they were they've been translating for quite some time the letters of a renaissance philosopher called marsilio ficino um and he was a very important um figure in terms of both the um translation of plato into latin so plato was not known to a lot of medieval society um because it was in only in greek and so he translated it into latin and sort of made it more accessible and he also had a very wide correspondence with many of the key political and literary figures of the day uh, and so those letters letters have never been translated into english um they're written in latin and so i'm helping with that so it's my contribution as thanks to the education that i received um, and they're published by Shepard Warren. And um, I think we're now on the last volume, um, 12 in total. Um, and they make his ideas and thoughts available to, you know, the academic and other community, which, you know, don't necessarily read Latin in its original form. Do you actually enjoy it or is it just a job? No, it's it's purely a hobby. There's no no benefit other than well i mean it's 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 very pleasing to see these ideas translated into english um and you know translation itself brings in a huge number of kind of variables um you've, obviously there's the original sort of ideas but then there's the how the ideas might be received by the audience in in a different language and so you've got to be very careful with the words you choose um but it's not just about sort of a faithful translation. You've got to convey some of the elegance of the language and the writing, and the bre- I mean, Latin's very. You can express things very with with great brevity in in Latin. It's more difficult in English, uh, and so to do that, um, and uh, and to do in a way that's uh, pleasing to read. So there's a lot of different ways and diff- sorry, different things to think about, um, and so it's. A relatively slow process but actually there's no there's no deadline there's no pressure to translate a certain amount each week and uh, so we we take our time and uh, i think the um the translations benefit from that of course in in a lot of the world you don't you're not given the time to to really uh, devote to something you've got to get it out very quickly so so i think it's been um, it's been really pleasing to be part of that process have you been tempted to take a bit of text stick it into chat gpt and see what it makes of it see how, how well it translates it i haven't actually but that's not a bad idea 
Um, so I've, one of the downsides of ChatGPT is that um, it occasionally says something very authoritatively, but it's just totally, total bollocks. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, it might be brilliant translations and then piece of sort of, you know, reasonable sounding bollocks. And, you know, if you're not careful, you might miss things like that. So, mm. uh, so, but it, yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm sure it would, it would be rather, um, you know, you could probably feed in all of what we have translated. Um, and, and then, you know, it would, it's there's probably enough on the internet that it could work out a translation of the things that haven't been translated. And you probably would get a very, in most cases, close translation in the style of the previously published works. Um, and then you could do a bit of editing around that to make sure it is correct. And that is something that you would say now. Uh, and actually probably in the future, this is exactly how it's going to be. Um, but you know, there's something quite, um, satisfying about doing it all yourself and going through all the slog and the discussion and the debates and uh, and so on and in that sense i'm quite pleased that um i hadn't heard of chat gpt until after i you know was well towards the end of the editorial process uh, for this book it kind of feels like one of the last books of the pre-chat gpt era um, and i'm quite you know for all the difficulty of writing it I'm quite pleased that I had to had to go through that process as a quote unquote traditional author, um, as opposed to one who would be assisted by AI and other tools. Do you know any Latin, Tim? Uh, non modo sed etiam. <laughs> <laughs> no. There's always ceteris paribus. You must know that. Oh, ceteris paribus. Yes. All things being equal. But Great. no, no, no. I don't don't use it very often. Right. But funnily uh, enough. So um so media picks, Tim. Do you did you I've well I'm plugging Ackle's book. I, I, I don't think how he can honestly plug anything else. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's completely uh completely fair. And um look, once again, Ackle, thank you so much for coming on the show. Just to finalise, was there anything that we didn't ask you that you, you'd like to mention just before we close? Um no, just to reiterate once again that um the so the book is available online it's available on kindle as an audiobook um and uh you can go to the book website if you want to to download some additional resources so it's the book website is the secret wealth advantage.com so the book title.com um and yeah thank you very much for having me on the show absolute pleasure just also to mention that you set up property share market economics in 2019 and if people want to sign up for a a free newsletter you can do it at that website and i'll share a link to that in the show notes as well so um you, you know your work is uh is 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 very much ongoing within property share market economics where i think a lot of people's questions will, will always be answered in real time which is kind of fascinating thank you yes yeah brilliant stuff okay well thanks again Akil look forward to having you back on the show and look forward to hearing um, about your your upcoming projects and all the very best best of luck you really deserve the success and uh, we'll see you soon hopefully cheers guys thanks so cheers, much Akil. cheers thanks everybody this podcast is for entertainment purposes only please do your own research or contact a professional advisor <laughs> <laughs>